Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me today as we conclude this season's investigation into the disappearance of the seventh Earl of Lucan, Lord Lucan John Bingham, Lucky, as he's known to his friends whose luck has run out, or has it? It is a disappearing act like no other. We were introduced to the term the Eaton Mafia in the last episode, and well, we have seen their damage, and we'll continue to see the sheltering of perhaps what happened to our Lord. Dominic Dunn will get on the case almost two decades after Lord Lucan's mysterious vanishing, November the 8th, 1974. Our man Nick does his reporting in 1993, going on 20 years later, and he does discover some hot gossip about the whole scene. Dunn will write from his piece, The Gentleman Vanishes in Vanity Fair. As is often the case in upper-class crime, it is as if the real crime were to take the crime seriously. Among many of Lucan's friends, there is a curious forgiveness for the vicious act that took place and a tendency to blame Lucan's unpopular wife, Veronica. His friends were quick, too quick, to tell me that he was dead. I would hardly have the question out of my mouth before an answer was thrust back at me. He's dead, or he walked into the sea and was eaten by crabs, or he took Valium and whiskey, lashed himself to the boat, opened the stopcocks, let the water in, and sank with it. A few other choice quotes about what could have happened to Lord Lucan. Of course he's dead. Suicide was the proper thing to do, the gentleman's way out. It would have been quite beneath him to be hiding out in South America in a disguise. Or, what is a million, or two or three, to people who would get such pleasure out of defying the law by keeping him alive somewhere? At that point of power and wealth, there are no rules. Dunn and his reporting will continue. At a dinner party I attended, I sat next to the former wife of another of the principals in the Claremont set. I said about Lucan, I think he's still alive. She looked at me for a bit, turned back to her plate, looked at me again and said, so do I. When I tried to delve further, she smiled, shook her head, and waved her hand to change the subject. I felt she was sorry she had said that much. I want to hearken back to an initial line we used in one of the very first episodes. There are two possible conclusions to this story. One is that Lord Lucan is dead. The other is that he's alive. Both theories have their supporters. What does or does not happen to lucky Lord Lucan? There is a lot of speculation that his rich and powerful friends helped scurry him out of the country. Maybe he did make a lucky escape. He would have needed his friends. His glasses, his passport, his clothes, all the stuff that you would take with you if you're going on the run, still lives in his flat on Elizabeth Street. Maybe Lucky escaped that night. Maybe Lucky escaped at a later date. Potentially, maybe he was murdered by the money lenders he was heavily in debt to 
And they found a way for their ends to wrap pretty nicely up in taking their revenge. No one knows. No one will ever know. But our man Nick sure does get a whole lot of the story. Dominic is convinced that Lucky is alive and out of the country. He knows John Aspinall and all those other fat cats that Lucky Lord Lucan is hanging with. There's always something there that Dominic will touch on. He thinks that this group is so touchy about Lucky Lucan, he'll always ask about it. He likes to make them squirm. Dominic believes that you wouldn't be so touchy and sensitive about this particular topic if there was not a there there. Dunn will also write of the fact that Lucky Lucan is lauded and Veronica, the unpopular Lady Lucan, is blamed. It's the same old story, but goodness, Dunn tells it deliciously in his piece, The Gentleman Vanishes. What are the theories about what did happen to Lord Lucan? What happens to our cast of characters in the Claremont set? How does this tale resolve, or can it ever be resolved? Let's investigate. First up, as we begin to conclude our investigation, it is Sir James Goldsmith. What happens to him? What's Dominic's reporting there? Dunn will write, Sir James Goldsmith spends December to April each year at his splendid fiefdom, Quizmala, on the west coast of Mexico, approximately 10 miles north of Caruas. Luxury. The addictive substance is the key word at Quizmala. He is having the greatest time of any guy I know, said a recent visitor. I have never seen such luxury. You can only arrive there by a private plane. One guest described the 18,000 acres of jungle and wetlands as, quote, very wild, very beautiful, very dangerous, unquote. There are big cats zebras, monkeys, and 400 crocodiles. Within this vast estate, 2,000 acres are enclosed by barbed wire fencing and patrolled by Goldsmith's private security staff. Great men of business fly in. Jacob Rothschild from London, Carrie Packer from Australia, Mick Flick from Germany, John Tigret from Tennessee, and John Gutfreund from New York, who nearly drowned one year in the rough sea. Richard Nixon has been there, as well as Henry Kissinger. John Aspinall, the English gambling figure, who has a private zoo and is probably Goldsmith's closest friend, visits regularly. Quizmala is no mere place in the country. There are 100 servants and 100 gardeners. There is a main house of Taj Mahal-like splendor with a golden dome, as well as several smaller houses for guests, all designed and decorated by Robert Couturier of New York. Fifty guests can be taken care of comfortably, but in a pinch, one hundred can be accommodated. Goldsmith attends to his guests' needs 
and entertainment meticulously. There are boats and beaches and pools and tennis courts and stables of horses for riding. Guests play backgammon and watch sports on satellite television. This year, Goldsmith flew down a jazz band from New Orleans, six black men and a woman singer who entertained him and his guests every day during lunch and dinner. It is a rarefied world. Several of this year's guests had stopped first in Los Angeles to attend the unveiling of a five-and-a-half-ton bronze elephant sculpture known as the Horusib Bull on the grounds of a multimillionaire's estate in Bel Air. Told you we were coming back to the bronze elephant. Dominic continues, I attended that party. The garden was tented in and jungle noises played on a sound system. John Aspinall, who had flown over from London with his wife, Lady Sarah, was a guest of honor, and he gave a passionate speech on the plight of elephants. It was all quite spectacular. Guests gasped at the magnificence of the 11 and a half foot high sculpture. The morning after the unveiling, I returned to New York from California on the private plane of a powerful man who greatly dislikes John Aspinall because of a gambling dispute at Aspinall's Claremont Club in London years ago when the man claimed Aspinall had allowed him to exceed his limit while intoxicated. He said to me, be careful, when I mentioned my interest in the continuing story of Lord Lucan, known to his friends as Lucky, who vanished into what seemed like thin air 19 years ago after mistakenly murdering a woman other than the woman he had meant to murder. Sir James Goldsmith does not live too much longer after Dominic Dunn's reporting. Jimmy Goldsmith does pass away from pancreatic cancer in July of 1997 at the age of 64. His widow, Lady Annabelle, is very much alive these days. Lady Annabelle serves as president of the Richmond Park branch of the Royal Society of St. George. Lady Annabelle participates in many philanthropic causes and also provided essential testimony in the 2007 inquest into the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. Let's continue down our cast of characters a bit and talk about Jimmy Goldsmith's best friend, John Aspinall. Dunn will write, The most fanciful theory, obviously untrue, but the most often repeated at the time, was that Lucan had repaired in haste to Howlett's, John Aspinall's estate with a private zoo, where he shot himself and, by prearrangement, was fed by Aspinall to the tigers, which consumed him, bones and all. Although the tigers at Howlett's were no strangers to human flesh, stories of their devouring Lucan were clearly preposterous. When the police reached Howlett's to search for Lucan, they were tired and frustrated by the runaround they had been given by Lucan's friends. Aspinall jokingly asked them if they wanted to raise the floorboards to search for him. Unamused, the police asked him if he was proud to be the friend of a man who had murdered one woman and then tried to kill his own wife by bashing her to death with a pipe. Aspinall replied, 
If she'd been my wife, I'd have bashed her to death five years before, and so would you. It was all such fun. A good time was had by nearly all. The police, attempting to learn the ways of the mighty, began infiltrating clubs, such as Annabelle's, much to the amusement of the swells, who played their parts to upper-class perfection, either teasing or taunting the police or giving them a chilly, haughty reception. Most of the players spoke of the police in mocking terms. John Aspinall's late mother, Lady Osborne, a well-known character in wit, is said to have ended a telephone conversation. Gotta go and give Lucky his food. He's down under the tiger cage. According to another story, when the police arrived at Aspinall's house in the country at 8 o'clock in the evening, they were told by the butler, I'm sorry Mr. Aspinall is having dinner, but we're the police. I'm terribly sorry I've been told not to disturb Mr. Aspinall, said the butler. We have to see him now, replied the police. Finally, they were led into the dining room. Seated at the table were John Aspinall, his wife, his mother, and a gorilla. Klaus von Bülow wrote to Aspinall that the police had called him in New York to see if he was hiding Lucan. James Goldsmith's second wife said that Interpol had come to her house in Paris. Several gamblers in the United States and Paris suspected their telephone lines were being tapped. An American living in Los Angeles who had known Lucan and been part of the London gambling scene was kitted every time he returned to England for harboring Lucan in his West Coast home. It was known that the day before the murder, Lucan had sent this man a check to pay a backgammon debt. When I expressed surprise that he would have taken care of such a detail, I was told, those gamblers, their sense of integrity is devoted more to each other than even to their families, particularly the ones who are addicted. One line was repeated to me over and over. Of all those gamblers, the one who probably knows is Aspinall, but he won't ever talk. At the time, though, Aspinall had quite a bit to say. According to Patrick Mammon, in Trail of Havoc, an account of the Lucan case, Aspinall said, speaking for himself and his friends, quote, If a close friend of yours came in covered with blood, having done some frightful deed, the last thing that would have occurred to you is to turn him in. It goes against every instinct of human loyalties, and to hell with the law or the common norms of civic behavior or something. If he had begged asylum, he would have had it. I would have helped him. Lord Lucan's girlfriend at the time of the murder told me recently, I remember thinking he was rather exotic. He was different from the people I knew. It was soon after I came out. I was only 19 and he was much older. I've always liked older men. My husband is now 22 years older than I am. The night it happened, there was confusion about whether we were going to have dinner with Greville Howard. I had to be at dinner in Kent, so I went there. I expected him to come down. It was a shooting weekend. In the morning, we heard there had been some problem the night before, but we didn't know what it was. I thought it was probably an IRA bomb. At lunch, after the shooting, people said to me to call this number. There had been a lot of calls for me. 
Then a friend called. He said, you have to get back to London as quickly as possible. He said, what was your arrangement with Lucan? Is there any likelihood he will turn up there? If the police call, don't say anything until we establish where he is. The police said this could be a crime of passion. He killed his wife to marry you. I said, no, no, no. We didn't have that kind of relationship at all. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Continuing a little bit of this shady investigation about John Aspinall from Dominic Dunn. So Dominic Dunn here gets on the case. He is going to go to England and talk to John Aspinall. Dunn will write, When I arrived in England, Aspinall's new club, simply called Aspinall's, had recently opened in what was once the White Elephant, a restaurant favored by show business people for many years. Originally the residence of the distinguished Curzon family, it was the London home of John Aspinall's third and current wife, who was born Lady Sarah Curzon. Unlike the serenely elegant Claremont, Aspinall's is elaborately, expensively, and purposefully overdone, with swagging and ruching in velvet, damask, and golden fringe to appeal to the gamblers of today, who are mostly Italians, Japanese, and Arabs. The upper-class English, on whom Aspinall built his gambling fortune, have largely abandoned the pursuit. On the night I met up with Aspinall, along with the internationally known decorator Nina Campbell, who is famed for having furbished the ill-fated marital abode of the Duke and Duchess of York, was being taken through the posh rooms of the new club by Anthony Little, of Osborne and Little, who had decorated the club. Little is married to John Aspinall's half-sister, the former Jennifer Osborne. Their late mother, Lady Osborne, who was known as Lady O., was the closest confidant of Lord Lucan and is said to have gone to her grave knowing all the secrets of this story. In a small fourth-floor backgammon room, otherwise empty, Aspinall was lying on a sofa in the dark watching tennis matches in Frankfurt on television. Little introduced us. Tell your rich friends to come in, Aspinall said to Nina Campbell. I don't have any rich friends, she replied. Nonsense. Anyone who can afford you to do up their house must be rich, said Aspinall. He laughed jovially, as if it were all a great joke. But gamblers were sparse that night, as they were on a subsequent visit. Throughout the club, old memories are evoked. At the top of the stairs leading from the public rooms to the gambling rooms, is an oil portrait of John Aspinall, painted by Dominic Elwes, before he disappointed his friends by talking to the press 
and suffered expulsion. Lucan is twice evoked, whether in homage or in defiance, I do not know. In one of the dining rooms, there is a stained glass window of the Jack of Spades, with two likenesses of Lord Lucan as the Jack. In the other dining room is a bust of Lucan in a niche high up on the wall next to a second niche containing a bust of the late King Farouk of Egypt, another famous loser on the gambling circuit. Beneath the bust of Lord Lucan is a plaque that reads, LK, what would you do if he walked into the room? J.A., I would embrace him. The two lines are an exchange between John Aspinall and Ludovic Kennedy from a television interview in 1974, a short time after the murder, when the manhunt for the missing lord was peaking. At that time, Aspinall seemed quite forthcoming. With me, he declined to be interviewed about Lord Lucan, a puff piece on his new club he would have consented to. A discussion of Lord Lucan? No. He declined charmingly, winningly, wittily, but he declined. A little bit of follow-up here about John Aspinall. Aspinall will run unsuccessfully for Parliament in the 1997 general election. He runs as a candidate of his big buddy, Sir James Goldsmith's single-issue referendum party. The whole party is against Britain's involvement in the European Union. Privately, John Aspinall holds an inordinate amount of anti-Semitic views. He has hatred towards Jews as well as an admiration for Adolf Hitler. When it comes to Lord Lucan, Aspinall always claimed that Lord Lucan had committed suicide by scuttling his motorboat and hopping on in the English Channel with a heavy stone tied around his body. Journalist Lynn Barber in 1990, does note that Aspinall makes a slip of the tongue this day, indicating that Lord Lucan had remained Aspinall's good friend beyond the date of his alleged suicide. In a little bit of further reporting, it is February 18th of 2012, BBC News and Glenn Campbell there reports that John Aspinall's ex-secretary, who is using a pseudonym of Jill Finley, reveals a little bit of dirt. Jill Finley says that she was invited into meetings where John Aspinall and Jimmy Goldsmith, BFFs forever, discussed Lord Lucan. Jill Finley continues, saying that on two occasions between 1979 and 1981, John Aspinall instructed her as part of her job to book trip arrangements to two countries in Africa for Lucan's children. Jill Finley says that this arrangement was so that Lord Lucan could see his children, but only from a distance. The children never met with Lucan. John Aspinall does pass away. He dies of cancer at the age of 74 in Westminster, London, June the 9th, 2000. Salim Zilka, another one of our cast of characters, still very much alive, 
enjoying his $700 million net worth. Susan Maxwell Scott, our last witness to at least say they have seen Lord Lucan back that terrible night. Susan Maxwell Scott passed away in September 2004 at the age of 67. I think that wraps up a number of our characters within the investigation, but there's a whole other half of this story. What happens to Veronica Lady Lucan? What happens to the children? What is the most internal damage that Lord Lucan's crimes do to his family? There was a court inquest in 1976 where Richard John Bingham, the seventh Earl of Lucan, the first peer to be tried and found guilty of murder in 200 years. Dunwell Wright, in court at the inquest, no one spoke to Lady Lucan. Like a pariah, she sat alone. Her mother-in-law, the Dowager Countess of Lucan, sat in the row in front of her, but they did not exchange a word. Her relationship with her sister, Christina Shandkid, had been rocky for some time, even before the murder. Mrs. Shandkid had appeared on Lucan's side in the custody case and was chastised in the press during the inquest for not speaking to her sister and for skipping court on the second day of the trial to attend the races at Ascot in the royal enclosure where she was reported as wearing a large picture hat with a blue ostrich feather. Goodness, there's so much fallout that happens between mother and children between sisters here. Lady Lucan's circumstances don't necessarily work out too great for her in the aftermath of her husband's terrible deeds. Veronica will have custody of her three children until 1981, where her trauma, her own addictions, will cause the court to take the kids away from her and put with her sister Christina and Christina's husband, William Shand Kidd. According to her, the children preferred this arrangement. These three kids may be not the best childhood with Lady Lucan. Lady Lucan is interviewed in 2017 and will say, when they were 12, 15, and 18, I received an affidavit from my son saying that it would be more congenial for them to live as part of their aunt and uncle's family. There was a family court hearing that I did not attend. George was old enough to make the decision himself. It was a shock, and the legal context made it more serious, but I didn't frankly like my sister and brother-in-law, which added to my distress. And that was that. Lady Veronica Lucan does not see her children again, ever. All finalized at that point. Dunn continues writing, A friend of Christina Shand Kidd, speaking cautiously, said to me, Lady Lucan's children stayed with her for some time after Lucan's disappearance. But when her health deteriorated, they were made wards of the court and legally put in the care of her sister. Christina took on the Lucan children with her husband, Bill, with whom she no longer lives. The Shan kids have a daughter one year older than Lady Frances and a son the same age as Lord Bingham. 
Did raising the Lucan children cause a problem with her sister? I asked. It was a problem. Lady Lucan was very unstable at the time. Did the children continue to see their mother after they went to live with their aunt? She was not tremendously welcoming, but the children have always tried as hard as they can to keep in touch with her. Did the children suffer at school? They didn't suffer any problems at all. They are extremely cheery children. However, the press has always hounded them. Each anniversary, they were chased and photographed. In the Shan Kid household growing up, was what happened ever discussed, or was it a thing not mentioned? It was, is, very much mentioned. It always has been. The family thought it was important to talk about. Does Mrs. Shan Kid see her sister? There was a pause. Lady Lucan has become a great recluse. This is Dominic Dunn writing in 1993 where he will talk about what Lady Lucan is up to 20 years after her husband's crime. Dunn writes, Lady Lucan lives today in very reduced circumstances in the Muse house inhabited by Greville Howard at the time of the murder at the end of the garden behind the Lucan house on Lower Belgrave Street. It is the one run-down house in the otherwise smart Muse. She rarely answers her telephone or her door. Neighbors say that she occasionally peers out from behind drawn curtains. At a London dinner party, where the case was being discussed during my recent visit, a lady said to me, I was doing something, voting or something, and someone said to me, Look, there's Lady Lucan. She was wearing a coat like a bag lady's, those eyes just staring blankly this wisp of gray hair pulled back. My dear, she was so strange. Veronica Lucan will live this very reclusive lifestyle to the end of her life. She is not invited to her children's weddings. She is quoted in 2017 about the wedding of her youngest daughter, Camilla, and not being invited. Lady Lucan says, I wasn't hurt at all that I hadn't been invited. It just reaffirmed my belief that keeping away from my children was the safest thing to do. Time has passed, and my life has carried on in a quiet, untroubled manner. I cannot see any advantage in seeing them. Lady Lucan follows up. I don't think about my sister either. She is no longer in my life. Lady Lucan, no sister, no kids. She will never meet any of her five grandchildren. What did she say a few episodes ago? All of my relationships have been cold. I think that bears out. Lady Lucan spends her remaining years in that two-bedroom muse cottage largely unchanged from its original decor some 60 years ago. This two-bedroom muse cottage is where Greville Howard, Victoria's former lover, was living at the time of the murder. Greville Howard was appointed a life peer in 2004 and is now known as Baron Howard of Rising. William Shand Kidd, Victoria's brother-in-law, does pass away December the 27th, 2014. Christina, Veronica's sister, is still alive today. 
Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about those kids who are very much grown up now. Dominic Dunn will write in 1993, Considering the traumatic event that befell them, the Lucan children have turned out tremendously well. Lady Frances, who is now 28, is a solicitor specializing in corporate law. Lord Bingham, who graduated from Cambridge, is a merchant banker. Lady Camilla is in her final year at Oxford reading classics. Friends of Lord Lucan's chipped in to pay for the education of his children, said the wife of a member of the Claremont set. Oh God, I'm not supposed to say that. Another family friend sat with me at tea in Claridge's. I always thought Lucky was the best father I ever knew. Of the children, I knew Frances best. Frances was brilliant. She went to Bristol University. She used to go out to South Africa every year to visit her uncle. Once I said to her, did you see your father there? And she said, I don't remember. Alas, poor dead nanny. People barely remember the name of Sandra Rivet. No member or representative of the Lucan family attended her funeral. Flowers were sent, pink chrysanthemums, and white carnations. The card read, To Sandra, with love from Veronica, Francis, George, and Pamela. The youngest child's name is Camilla, not Pamela. A florist's error, no doubt. Sandra Rivett's father, when he went to retrieve his daughter's belongings at the Lucan house, was made to wait outside the front door. After a few minutes, a bag containing her clothing and personal effects was handed out to him. At the inquest, he was heard to say, my daughter's name was scarcely mentioned. Let's spend a little time and talk about that title and the journey and the journey that Lord Bingham, Lord Lucan's son George, takes to gain that Lucan title for himself. Done writing in 1993. In June of last year, Lord Lucan's son, Lord Bingham, aged 24, began legal action to take over the estate of his father. Furthermore, there were rumors that the heir was making moves to claim his father's earldom. For the first time in the worldwide manhunt for the missing peer, Scotland Yard said that there was no evidence to suggest that he was still alive. However, it is official procedure to declare a person legally dead after seven years. Lucan never has been. According to the House of Lords Registrar, he remains alive. A Scotland Yard spokesman said, The Lucan file remains open. He is still circulated as wanted worldwide. It does take George Bingham just a little bit longer. I am sourcing this simply from Wikipedia to try to cover as much ground as I can because Dunn, writing in 93, George will not get his earldom for a number of years. In the 1990s, the probate registry which is a division of the High Court of Justice, gave leave for the seventh Earl to be sworn dead by his trustees. The family was granted probate over his estate in 1999, but curiously enough here, no death certificate was issued. In 1998, Bingham, supported by sworn statements from his entire living family, 
Save Veronica, as well as, supported by statements from the Metropolitan Police, applied for his father to be declared dead for House of Lords purposes. The Lord Chancellor at that time decided he was unable to issue Bingham his writ of summons to the Lords without a death certificate for his father. Fast forward all the way up to October 2015. This is 12 months after the Presumption of Death Act 2013 comes into effect. Here, George Bingham seeks for his father to be declared dead at the General Register Office. The GRO issues death certificates. In the case of Lucan, an application to the High Court was necessary. It is on the 3rd of February, 2016, that a judge declares that the General Register Office could issue the death certificate, thereby allowing George Bingham to inherit the titles. On the 23rd of May in 2016, Lucan formally petitioned the House of Lords to have his secession recognized. On the 7th of June, the House declared that in fact George Bingham had established his claims to the titles and he was directed to be entered on the register of hereditary peers, which is maintained in connection with the House of Lords Act 1999. This is validated by virtue of his subsidiary title, Baron Bingham, listed within the peerage of the United Kingdom. At least according to the General Register Office and the House of Lords, the 7th Earl of Lucan, John Richard Bingham, is dead. Long live the 8th Earl of Lucan, George. I think we have followed up on most of the cast of characters in our investigation, but I do have the final act here for Victoria Duncan Bingham, Countess of Lucan. This is reporting from the BBC in the autumn of 2017. The widow of Lord Lucan died from a cocktail of drink and drugs after diagnosing herself with Parkinson's disease, an inquest was told. Police discovered 80-year-old Lady Lucan's body after forcing entry into her London home last year. She was found on the dining room floor with a pill bottle under her body, Westminster's coroner's court heard. A pathologist concluded she died from respiratory failure caused by barbiturates and alcohol poisoning. Born Veronica Duncan, Lady Lucan was reported missing by a worried friend after not turning up for her regular walk, the inquest heard. Police subsequently smashed a window to break into the two-story terrace townhouse in Belgravia, central London, at about 17.30 GMT on the 26th of September, 2017. Veronica Duncan married John Bingham, 7th Earl of Lucan, in 1963. Lady Lucan, who was born in Uckfield, East Sussex, was worried she had developed Parkinson's after she noticed a tremor in her right hand, lost her sense of smell, felt tired, anxious, and suffered from insomnia, as well as becoming forgetful. The hearing was told she had attended a meeting on assisted suicide the previous year and complained of having money troubles. 
Notes were found in her diary on how to take her own life if she became frail and had books on assisted dying. In one entry on the 5th of August last year, about six weeks before her death, she listed potential suicide items copied from four suicide books found in her house. A later entry detailed her suspected Parkinson's symptoms, but she had not been diagnosed by a doctor, the hearing was told. In a written statement, David Davies, who had known her for two years, said, There was nothing in her behavior to suggest anything was wrong. Although she thought she had the onset of Parkinson's and had a tremor in her right hand and was worried she'd lost her sense of smell. We both discussed how to end our lives, but only if we developed a degenerative or terminal illness or became reliant on other people. But there was nothing to suggest she was considering this and she seemed cheerful the last time I saw her. Coroner Dr. Fiona Wilcox recorded a conclusion of suicide. One more player here, and it's the one that we'll never, never know the answer to. Lord Lucan, 7th Earl, what does become of him? It is unlikely that we will ever really know what happens to Lucky Lucan. Furthermore, it is far more likely that he has since passed on whatever his fate may have been. Lucky John Bingham, the seventh Earl of Lucan, would be 88 years old. That is an awfully long life, most especially for one perhaps on the run, especially with many of your biggest supporters, John Aspinall, James Goldsmith, having since passed on. This investigator, just like our man Nick, does feel that there was certainly a there there. I agree with Dominic that this whole set would not have been quite as sensitive, quite as on guard, quite as touchy, if they did not know perhaps more than they may be revealed. The Secrets and Sins of the Upper Crust. This is our man Dominic Dunn's best playground. Thank you, thank you so much for joining me for this season of Dun and Dunn. We will be back the first Saturday in December with a whole new series ready for you to dive into. In the meantime, if you want to get deeper into your investigation, you can find more episodes over at patreon.com slash done and done. We have multiple bonuses over there that already exist. We have numerous bonus episodes coming up for you in the month of November as well that pertain to the Lord Lucan story. We're going to have all the dish about the debutante system, Princess Alice of Greece, just to name a few. So much more to the investigation over there. As always, a tremendous thanks to our Patreon community for your love and support. An enormous gratitude from my heart to yours. For y'all, for listening, for sharing the done and done love, with me through your kind emails, through your kind reviews, for sharing the done and done love with your friends too and getting news of us out in the world. Y'all are quite simply the best. Until we meet again, friends, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com 
You can follow us on Instagram at Done and Done Podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.